0: How can we design spaces that make us measurably healthier, happier, and more productive? Join us on Built for Health, where we talk with public health professionals, researchers, and AEC practitioners on the latest knowledge and strategies to design, build, and operate healthier buildings. I'm Flavia Gray. I'm a Schneider Fellow at USGBC, and I'll be your host on Built for Health, brought to you by USGBC. Hi and welcome to Built for Health, I'm Flavia Gray, your host, and in today's episode we discuss light with Dr. Stephen Lockley from the Harvard Medical School and Brigham Women's Hospital and with Brian Steverson from the U.S. General Services Administration. They will tell us about their professional journeys and their current work, how light can influence our alertness and sleep quality, some strategies to provide the appropriate light to occupants in different types of buildings, and how lighting strategies can be integrated into a more holistic design approach.
1: Uh, My name is Stephen Lockley, and I'm a neuroscientist in the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and uh, an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And for the past 20 years, I've been studying the impact of light, or lack of light, on human uh, rhythms, sleep, uh, and other factors which uh, are affected by light.
2: So I am Brian Steverson. I'm with the uh, U.S. General Services Administration. I'm a program advisor within our Office of Federal High Performance Buildings, uh, specifically uh, in the Buildings and Health uh, Program area.
0: Great. And that's a perfect introduction to start talking about the research and what we know about how light impacts human health and performance. So, Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this?
1: So until about 15 to 20 years ago, we thought that all of the effects of light on humans were mediated through the rods and cones that we used to see. And so we have these uh, two sets of photoreceptors in the eye, which help us uh, with our visual responses. But some studies in blind people and in blind animal models through the 90s showed that, uh, in fact, if you uh, had damage to these uh, photoreceptor systems, the rods and cones, the circadian responses to light still remained, And this was a mystery as to how this was happening because we thought rods and cones controlled everything. Um, but a series of researchers uh, were able to isolate the, uh, the photoreceptor and the photopigment that we use to detect light. Uh, and a researcher called Iggy Provencio at the University of Virginia uh, isolated a pigment called melanopsin. And it's called melanopsin because he discovered it in, uh, in skin uh, skins of frogs where he was looking at melanin responses. But he also found that it was located in the eye in mammals, in, in mice and then in, in humans. And these, this photoreceptor pigment, this pigment is in a, a different part of the retina than the rods and cones. It's at the front of the retina in the ganglion cell layer. And the ganglion cell layer uh, was really thought of as, as the uh, area of the brain where the information was, was sent to the brain uh, from the rods and cones, so the relay center but wasn't known to be directly photosensitive. And so what he was able to show, and then other researchers uh, could could repeat, was that these cells, a small number of cells in the ganglion cell layer that contain melanopsin were able to control a range of uh, so-called circadian or non-visual effects of light, such as resetting the timing of the biological clock, uh, directly alerting the brain, uh, improving mood, affecting our pupil response, and, and so on. and This melanopsin pigment is most sensitive to blue light, uh, peaking at around 480 nanometers in the blue part of the visible spectrum. And so because this system is now uh, in a different part of the retina and has a different uh, spectral sensitivity, a different wavelength sensitivity to the rods and cones, we can now start to think about how to manipulate light to preferentially stimulate that system or preferentially avoid stimulating it. And so by changing... Uh, for example, the amount of blue light in a spectrum, we can increase stimulation and help improve alertness or shift the clock uh, more quickly, or we can uh, deplete or remove some of those blue wavelengths to help calm the brain down or not shift the clock, if that's what we want to achieve. And so this discovery was really enormous for the field, a whole new photoreceptor in the mammalian eye um, that is different from the rods and cones we used to see, that has a different... Uh, spectral sensitivity, different wavelength sensitivity, that now allows us to preferentially manipulate that different from our visual responses, uh, which peak at a different part of the visible spectrum.
0: How do we stimulate them? So what is the summary of, does it complement, does it need to be a different type of light for alertness versus for visual acuity? Or can it be the same light that works for both?
1: So the initial studies of this new photoreceptor system used uh, very uh, pure uh, monochromatic light or narrowband light to try and isolate the impact of this photoreceptor. So these were they were really basic experiments to try and understand the system. Uh, but in practice, these wavelength changes can be delivered within polychromatic or, or white light. And so we are not saying that people have to be exposed to just blue light, uh, which makes things look strange. These effects can be delivered within white light because white light is made up uh, of a range of of these visible wavelengths, including these these blue wavelengths. And so um, if if one wants to maintain good vision, then we have to have good quality white light. We need to be able to see well uh, and, and be able to do the tasks that we want. And so that's our first consideration. But then within that white light, we can increase or decrease The content of the short wavelength blue light this 480 nanometer light to either make the light more alerting and that would be an increase in these short wavelengths or to make the light less alerting for example before sleep uh, where you would take uh, out uh, those blue wavelengths and deplete the proportion of blue and so within a white light exposure you can change the spectrum of the white light to elevate or decrease the amount of blue Uh, and then alongside that you would, would also change intensity. We know that light intensity impacts how light affects our physiology. And so higher intensity light has a bigger effect, lower intensity has a lower effect. And so you would would change uh, both of these. In the daytime, where you want to be alert, you want a a blue enriched and high intensity light source, uh, a little bit like the sun is. Uh, But then in the evening before sleep, you want a dimmer and blue depleted light source uh, to help calm the brain before bedtime.
0: you talked about the circadian Rhythm and the circadian system. What is that for our
1: audience members? So uh, circadian it it means about a day, and a circadian rhythm is a rhythm which has a period of about 24 hours. And we all have circadian rhythms. We we all have a clock in the brain, and this 24-hour clock controls the timing of many of our our, uh, biological physiological factors. And so your sleep cycle is, is a circadian rhythm. Your alertness patterns, your mood. Your performance, metabolism, many hormones, uh, you know, at least 10% of the genome is is controlled by the circadian clock. And so these 24-hour rhythms run on their own time in the brain and need to be reset every day by light. And although we take it for granted, we don't go outside and and see light at a certain time to make sure it does this, your clock uh, through the eyes gets light information, which then resets it every day to stay synchronized or entrained to 24 hours. And so if you uh, live in a light-dark cycle, a normal light-dark cycle, your clock synchronizes itself to keep all of your rhythms at the right time of day. Now, light uh, is the most important environmental factor that resets the clock. Uh, And we know that because when you disrupt the light-dark cycle, you get disruptions in the clock and its rhythms. And so those of you who work night night shifts, uh, when you are awake at night and asleep in the day and changing your light-dark cycle, uh, know that that disrupts sleep and performance. Uh, Similarly, jet lag, which is the same problem where you shift your light-dark cycle too quickly for your clock to keep up with. Um, And then an example I mentioned earlier, which is our our studies of totally blind people. If you don't have eyes or don't have light perception, you can't synchronize your clock uh, to the light-dark cycle. And so many of those blind people suffer from something called non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder, where their clock runs on their own internal time, which is around 24 and a half hours a day. Uh, rather than 24 hours uh, for those blind people. Uh, and so our circadian system generates our rhythms, and then the light keeps them properly synchronized to make sure we're awake uh, and doing things at the right time, and also asleep at the right time.
0: And so when you want to be awake, make sure that you have sufficient light, and ideally blue-enriched light.
1: That's exactly. That's exactly the, the application of these findings. We want to try and use light uh, as a passive uh, countermeasure to make sure that it helps us uh, with our daytime alertness and our nighttime sleep. Uh, and, and that's exactly right. The high intensity blue enriched light uh, should be used when we want to be awake, but then in the hours before we plan to sleep, we need to reduce that uh, and be exposed to lower intensity uh, and blue depleted light.
0: Great, so how do we do this in the built environment? And Brian, you were talking about how the GSA has a diverse building portfolio. So from the building owner's perspective, how do you even start to think about providing sufficient lights to your occupants?
2: Yeah, so we we have a, you know, GSA is the federal government's uh, landlord. We provide workspaces for over a million federal employees. And we have a lot of buildings, 8700 owned and leased buildings across the country and U.S. territories. And we have uh, 370 million square feet. And a lot of our buildings, are older. Um, they were all designed in different architectural styles and for many different purposes. And in a lot of instances, we inherited buildings that were originally designed for something else altogether. For instance, sometimes we get disposed or, or unneeded assets from other agencies, such as warehouses, and we convert those um, into uh, into office buildings. You know, We have older buildings and we have newer buildings, right? And the newer buildings that we have recently constructed tend to have more daylighting in the in the design itself more windows more deep daylighting penetration In a lot of our older buildings though that's not always the case And so for us as a as a property owner and manager it, it gives us a lot of different challenges to figure out you know how can we provide the amount of lighting that we need to provide in order to a meet code requirements for lighting services but then what we've really been focused on uh, lately is Can we provide sufficient light so that people are awake and alert during the day while they're at work, thus they're able to accomplish their mission as an agency, and also making sure that they have good sleep quality at night through their light exposure during the day so that they are at work, they are present at work, and they are, um, uh, you know, doing the job that they are, you know, supposed to be doing. So we've been gathering evidence um, and data, you know, over the past several years looking at this challenge set because you know and in, in a lot of our newer buildings we even have spaces that aren't you know that that are and people are in biological darkness they're in areas that even in a well lit building um there are really tall partitions cubicles dark finishes and because of that the amount of light that people are being exposed to may not be sufficient to really give them that good alerting effect throughout the day and so in terms of applying this it's a little bit more challenging and it's also you know, not just about daylighting and electric lighting, but we also have to consider, you know, the interior finishes, uh, the colors of desktops, of carpets, of walls on, or sorry, of uh, paint colors on walls. And also how do people in the space, how do they behave? Um, Are people rewarded for their good work by having offices on the exterior of the building, therefore not having a lot of lighting, you know, penetrate deep into the building? Um, who, you know, who controls the, the window shades um, and how is that done? What we've seen a lot in, in some of our work is that people tend to lower their window shades when they, when, when there's glare, when there's a lot of light coming in that's, in, that's inhibiting them from for doing work. But when that glare experience is over with, the shades tend to still be down. So they're not necessarily at that time getting enough light that they possibly could be from, from, from daylight
0: you brought up a lot of great points and all of these different areas to think about. Um, One of them that we started talking about is daylight and providing sufficient daylight. And especially now, daylighting is getting sort of a renaissance that everybody's becoming very interested in, everybody wants daylight. Steve, is there a benefit from daylight that we can't get from electric lights from your studies?
1: We're not entirely sure if, if there's a real difference between how the, the brain perceives the, the photons from, from daylight or from electric light. Uh, certainly from our evolutionary uh, development point of view, we've evolved in daylight, and so the brain has evolved to see daylight, um, and so we are our clocks are expected to see those bright, blue rich days, uh, which daylight provides, and then dark nights. And it is the light and dark cycle. Uh, that the clock is, is using to synchronize itself. And so wherever possible, we should use daylight. Obviously, it's a, a natural uh, and inexpensive light source. Um, it's something we should promote, and people should be exposed to daylight in the day. But if we don't have access to daylight, then we need to try and provide those blue and rich uh, photons, that blue and rich light in another way, uh, usually with electric light. And so having daylight and electric light work together uh, to provide the best environment is, you know, is really the best of both worlds. Where you have daylight, use it, uh, but in spaces where you don't or you don't get enough of the daylight because it, it does penetrate into the space, um, then supplement that with uh, blue-enriched electric light. Um, and then the opposite uh, of that is, is is also true. We want darkness at night. And so in your, in your homes, in your bedrooms, after bringing down the lighting uh, in terms of intensity and blue content in the evening before bed, you need to be sleeping in darkness. That's what the, the brain has evolved to do. Uh, and so even if your environment isn't completely dark, although you should try and do that with blackout curtains and so on, uh, then an eye mask is a very good way to tackle that because all of these effects are going through the eyes. Uh, and so an eye mask will block all the light uh, going to, into the eyes during sleep and, and help the brain know it's night uh, and, and help you sleep better. And so let's use the, the natural environment where we can uh, but when we can't, we're going to supplement it then with lights that's complementary uh, with this high intensity blue enriched spectrum uh, that is, is doing the work of daylight, hopefully.
0: So, Brian, why don't you tell us some specific strategies that the GSA has when thinking about daylight and providing daylight, especially for new buildings?
2: Well, in, in the work that we have been, been doing, you know, what we found is in, in those people, both in buildings that um, People had a lot of daylight exposure. Um, People tended to sleep better at night. They tended to sleep or fall asleep faster at night if they were getting a lot of good light. Um, They tended to be in better moods and were more alert during the day. And they tended also to have more energy and vitality throughout the day. And so for that, that's great news for those people that are getting that good light. And the reason that they're getting exposed to that light is probably because they're sitting near the window Um, Or they are up and about moving in really brightly lit spaces. And so some of the things that we've been considering and applying is, you know, uh, a lot of break areas, um, you know, tend to be some of them tend to be in the interior of the building. A lot of them still tend to be on the exterior. And that's great. But those break areas uh, that just don't have a lot of light, we'd like to we, we call it a lumen shower. But. Um, basically is, is really providing a space for people to go to for 30 minutes or for however long they can just sit, to eat, take a break, to drink a cup of coffee or eat lunch or just converse with colleagues so they can get that really good light that they need. Um, you know, other things that, uh, uh, whether it's daylight buildings or whether it's buildings that um, don't have a lot of daylight penetration where we need to do some supplemental electric lighting, you know, is, again, you can provide those uh, lumen showers, but also provide, uh, you know, even walking paths outside of the building. Is there a way, you know, within the uh, complex or whatever to provide an area where people can go outside um, during the day when it's nice um, to walk around, get some exercise, get some fresh air and also get that good,
1: you know, light? And if I can just uh, add, add to what Brian said. There are a number of studies in other areas where these types of approaches have been shown to be beneficial. And so uh, there are a number of studies, for example, showing that higher intensity blue enriched light in classrooms is able to help children concentrate better and read better, uh, and then we hope longer term learn better. Um, And so schools are a good environment where these types of effects can be applied. And there are some office studies where at least people report Uh, more daytime uh, productivity, more daytime alertness, less fatigue, as well as the sleep benefits that that Brian described. Uh, And we've uh, done a number of studies in shift workers and other groups where we've used lighting interventions at night, either continuously or using the the intermittent type exposure that Brian described, uh, changing break room lighting. And again, we can see benefits through the night shift of putting blue-enriched high-intensity light uh, into these break rooms if people can't get continuous exposure. And so there are an increasing number of studies showing that if you take this approach, uh, you can have benefits for both the, the daytime alertness and performance or, or work time performance if you're a night worker. Uh, but then there are also these, these uh, additional benefits when you go home and sleep because your circadian clock, uh, your light-dark cycle has been better aligned to to your behavior when you sleep.
0: question for both of you because we're talking about this taking breaks and separating people i think a lot of the people in offices are spending a long time looking at computer screens and so how do computer screens affect this exposure
1: yeah so computer screens tend to generate a lot of the blue light that that we want people to get in the daytime or at least at work and so those bluer wavelengths those bluer screens while you're at work are probably helpful Um, because quite a lot of light is being emitted and it's quite close to the eyes and it's approximately of of the right wavelength. The problem comes if we want to use electronic devices in the evening or overnight because then those blue rich wavelengths are doing us harm. They're alerting the brain at night when we want to sleep. And so it's concerning that a lot of people do use uh, laptops, tablets, and phones in the hours before bed, uh, even in bed. Uh, or even in the night, um, if they're woken by something, they, they look at their phones. Um, and this is not a good idea because it's going to alert the brain, uh, suppresses the hormone melatonin, which tells the brain it's nighttime, it uh, will help uh, make it harder to go back to sleep, um, and, and over time you know, could cause an increased risk of clinical sleep disorders like insomnia. And so in the evening, uh, for as long as possible before bed, uh, we would like people to either not use their devices, but if they have to use their devices, then install some of the software that automatically dims and blue depletes the screen gradually. Uh, and there are a number of these. Uh, Apple introduced uh, something it calls Night Shift on its devices, which automatically does this if you turn it on. Uh, and there's a free piece of software called F.Lux, f.lux, uh, which you can download onto your systems that, that does a similar thing in terms of changing the spectrum of, of your screen. And then if you're awake at night, it automatically at least comes on with a dimmer and blue depleted screen. And so we do have to think carefully about how and when we use electronic devices because they are quite a powerful light source. And, and we worry about them because they're so close to the eyes and the intensity of light reaching the eyes will, uh, will be much greater than a TV that you know might be 10 feet away. Uh, and so think about what you're using if you're at work then those blue wavelengths are, are fine. But in the evening, for several hours before sleep, and certainly overnight, avoid using them. And if you have to use them, install software which takes out the blue and dims it.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really important point and something that, you know, we can provide a workspace during the day, you know, that provides that really good light. But when people go home and, uh, you know, are or, or on their tablets or, or electronic devices late at night, you know, that completely erases what that person was exposed to during that day. And it's going to impact their sleep and also their alertness the next day. So it is an important consideration that, you know, the workplace can do but so much. But after people leave for the day and go home to their personal lives, there are really other considerations people need to look at as well.
0: Awesome. So going back to the buildings themselves and what we do have control of, what about some of those barriers that you were mentioning, Brian? And so you were talking about one of the things is interiors, which is something that people don't often think about when thinking about lighting design. How should you address them? How do they complement or hinder your effort in providing sufficient light?
2: Yeah, so um, I mentioned briefly a little bit ago about partitions and cubicles and, and, and interiors. You know, the, the whole lighting question, it, it's really more of an ecosystem, right? Um, it's not just about light, although light, of course, is extremely important because that's why we're talking about it. Um, but the interior design of the workspace is also important. You could have a very well day lit building with some pretty good deep daylight penetration coming in. Um, but if we put up eight foot partitions and cubicles uh, with darker finishes, that's not really going to do anything for the person sitting in that cubicle. Um, and so that's a conversation that us as a provider of workspace really needs to have up front with the customer in the beginning of the planning process to say, you know, here's some considerations when we're looking at building a space. Usually furniture selection is one of the last things that's done. The daylighting ecosystem, it's, it's, it, is, it does complicate things, um, but it's not impossible. It's just making sure that us as a building owner and a provider workspace, we can educate our customers um, and insert more of this Um, health aspects with light um, in addition to the other aspects of light for visual tasks that we're already doing. It's really providing more of an education to help people choose um, the right setups to really promote that good light in workspaces.
1: And I think that we, you know, there there may be sort of a need to rethink slightly some of the priorities around lighting and and the light environment, the ecosystem, uh, as Brian called it, Um, because there there still seems to be a preference somehow for, for some designers wanting to use warmer warmer colors, warmer tones, lower blue light, um, less blue light in the daytime in, in spaces. Uh, and this doesn't really make sense from a biological point of view, from, from the biology we know about how light affects alertness and, and the clock and so on. Um, and so we need to move away from this idea that uh, we you know people prefer warmer lights. In fact, when, when you study them, people tend to prefer the blue enriched uh, lights because they see better and feel better. Um, but it is really about the whole design. It's no good putting these excellent uh, blue-rich lights in the ceiling if then we've got you know red walls and orange carpets because the light won't be reflected appropriately and won't reach the the occupants' eyes. And so it is about looking at the whole design and how you can make the the design of the space, the paint colors, the furnishings, and so on, complement the daylight, the blue-rich daylight, or the the blue-rich electric light, so that we maximise the the whole space to make sure that people are as alert as they can be, um, and get away from this idea that this uh, that people somehow prefer this cosy, warm, uh, you know, sort of red-orange uh, uh, exposure in the daytime because there's really no biological evidence for that. Uh, it goes against everything we you know about how uh, light affects physiology, and, and of course the sun doesn't do that. There's there's no uh, warm colours in the daytime when you have sunlight access. Uh, and so it does need a slight rethink, I think, from some of the practices that some designers have had, uh, over the past decades. Uh, but I think that's a very exciting opportunity because it means we can try new things and do things that haven't been done before and rethink design in a way that hasn't been considered before. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity.
2: Yeah. I, I want to also echo that. I think, uh, you know, one of the challenges that we've kind of talked around a little bit, but Steve just, uh, I think um, better explained it is, you know, Researchers and scientists rarely talk one-on-one with designers. Um, uh, I think that's happening more and more now with different rating systems that are out there. But um, there is there is sort of that gap between the technical information and the scientific information, which, which is extremely important. But then translating that into ways and strategies for designers to take and put into workspaces. And I think that's starting to shift. I think that challenge is starting to be um Solved, um, but uh, it, it's still it, it, it's still a, a big leap from the technical scientific evidence to um, design strategies, and I think we're headed in the right direction.
0: One of the things that's happening, as you both know, especially in this area with this evolving conversation, is a discussion on you know what are the metrics that we should use. And so, without getting into details, could you tell us you know what are the guidelines that we know are right and that we can help our audience choose their lights for their spaces?
1: So the, the field is, is in flux at the moment. The, the There aren't established standards for these non-visual effects of light Yeah, uh, although some of the agencies that create standards like the IES and the CIE are doing that. Uh, it, it's generally a slow process, and often the standards lag behind the technological advances. Um, and so while that's important and those are being done, um, I do agree. We need more information for designers and, uh, and people managing buildings now because these changes are available now. This can be brought to something I think I think fairly simple. Um, even without getting into all of the, the background neuroscience or the standards, what we're trying to do here is mimic as far as we can that blue-enriched, high-intensity light that sunlight provides in the daytime uh, in, in a workspace. And so, anything you can do to improve the blue content and intensity of that lighting will be beneficial to the occupants. And so that means increasing light intensity. Uh, and, of course, there's been a huge drive uh, to decrease uh, electricity use and, and light intensity and, and increase the efficiency of lighting. And so if you put in in or changing your lights, retrofitting lights, then putting in a light with a higher color temperature will, in general, uh, have more of the blue wavelengths that, that we want. Uh, but then when we want to deplete the the impact of the light, for example, at home before bed, then we want to use lighting which is uh, a lower blue content, and that tends to be lights with a lower color temperature.
0: I think that's a great takeaway for our audience, Brian.
2: You know, just just having the idea of having circadian lighting in the conversation with other um, aspects of a building is a good thing, and I think it's a good start. And so I'm hopeful that you know, as time goes by. Um, more guidance and clarity, you know, as 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 we can, as we as a complete industry, not just CSA, of course, but researchers, scientists, et cetera, continue to gather evidence and, and do more research and, and studies. I think as time goes by, we'll get more clarity on this issue. And I, I agree, um, you know, technology has definitely ramped up faster than standards, and there are things that we can do now. So that shouldn't stop us because there's not a standard metric yet. That should not stop us from from trying to to do good in the workplace, because that's where ultimately what you know we're trying to do is, is really provide that benefit and, and not wait around.
0: If our audience wants to know more about the subject, what would you recommend they read? Brian, you were mentioning there's lots of information out there, what's one place where they can get started?
2: The Well Building Standard has information on circadian light and their circadian lighting feature. Um, and, and so if people are interested in learning more about circadian lighting and, and how, you know, Buildings can, can look to circadian lighting uh, or, or look to doing work in that area. That's one, that's one step. Uh, we also at GSA have done uh, several studies in 11 federal buildings across the U.S. as well as two buildings um, in northern Europe um, looking at this. And so we have published some studies as well, and, and that website is gsa.gov slash light.
1: Yeah, the Harvard School of Public Health has uh, released a document that it calls its, its nine elements or nine foundations of building health, and that includes a, a lighting section. Uh, we also have a, a number of publications trying to to model uh, lighting and and the impact of light in interior spaces, and there are you know literally uh, hundreds of different research papers uh, that have tackled the basics of this and and the more recent applied work, which we'd be happy to provide. We also have uh, coming out, uh, in fact, it's being launched very soon, but uh, will be available commercially next year. Um, a design product which will help people uh, to design spaces uh, with all the normal considerations that, that a lighting designer would need. But in addition, we're adding a circadian lighting module. Um, and that's something called Alpha, uh, Adapted Lighting for Alertness, uh, produced by a company called Solema, uh, who uh, produce a, a software package called Diva of Rhino. Uh, which is used uh, as a design tool. And so some of the the principles we've been talking about today uh, will be integrated into that lighting design package and will allow designers to choose furnishings and paint colors and light sources um, and uh, in real time be able to track um, the the melanopic effect, the the impact of that 480 nanometer light on the space. Um, And so there are some uh, resources we can share and then also and some more practical tools which will be ready in the next
0: few months that's amazing thank you so much this has been a really interesting conversation and very enlightening pardon the pun <laughs> thank you so much to both of you i hope you enjoyed this enlightening conversation with dr stephen lockley from the harvard medical school and Brigham and women's hospital and brian steverson from the u.s general services administration they explain the role of light in keeping us alert at work and in getting a good night's sleep and some design strategies that affect the amount and quality of light we are exposed to within the built environment. To learn more, check out the light-related courses on the education platform at usgbc.org, including The Light Stuff, energy-efficient lighting for a healing environment, and Green Lights: a lighting manufacturer's roadmap to lead B4. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Built for Health by USGBC. Now we want to hear from you. What was your favorite part of today's episode? What are your best practices and strategies? Share with us on Facebook or Twitter at USGBC. To learn more, visit our website at usgbc.org. Thanks for listening.